thank you for tonight and for your word. Pray you would bless it as we study that you would just speak things to us, Lord, and help us to uh, be challenged and just, again, give vision, clarity, and wisdom as far as what we do on Thursday nights. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the importance and necessity of God's word in the believer's life. Okay, I wanted to um, give you some statistics that I had from last week that I didn't use, so they work good tonight. Um, I just want to throw these out there. According to the Barna Group, they took this poll in 2017, actually just a few months ago. Um, the poll was done with 1,000... You see my music stand falling here? No. I thought it was falling off. Yeah, I'm like, it's getting lower. It's going to be on the ground here pretty soon. Uh, anyways, they, they made... 1,025 telephone interviews, and they had 1,028 online uh, surveys. They, they surveyed 1,028 people online, and um, they were asking them about God's Word. And 22% of the people believed that the Bible was actually God's Word. I'm going to look at my the actual statistics that I have here. So, 22% of the people said that the Bible was actually God's Word in 2017. Back in 2007, <laughs> there. back in 2007, 26% of the people surveyed, which was basically the same number, the same group, but 11 years earlier, no, 10 years earlier, 26% of the people that they surveyed believed that the Bible was actually God's word and that it should be taken literally, word for word, okay? So the difference between the 10 years of 2007-2017, 4% difference as far as what the people believed. So it went down. They also asked um, what they thought about the Bible as far as what kind of book it was. And it, in 2017, 18% of the people said it was just another book of teachings written by men that contained stories and advice. Back in 2007, only 11% of the people said that it was just another book of teachings written by men and that it contains stories and advice. So we can see that the people's beliefs about the Bible being literal or inspired by God is going down um, slowly over the last 10 years. Um, so we can see that though the church continues to say that we believe God's word is important, like I'm talking about tonight, the importance and necessity, we can see that they don't actually believe um, that is it's that important, nor is it really God's word to be taken and believed and lived out word for word. So it's a sad commentary not only on the church, but the world seeing the church and believing it. So there was an interview done. Maybe you guys have heard of this guy. His name was 
Bill Maher. He has a HBO show. And Bill Maher was talking to a guy um, and asked him, and this was, I didn't write the guy's name or anything down. I didn't want to say who it was because he made him look bad. But this is this is something, I'm going to pose the questions and kind of to you guys, the same questions he asked, and how would you have answered these questions that Bill Maher asked? And uh, one of the things he said to this guy, he said, explain to me how a book, oh man, not even the whole quote's on here, how a book that is written by God who is perfect has so much, and then there's probably profanity because he didn't say what he said next, blank, blank, blank. And he said, and it's pro-slavery. So Bill Maher's going, well, why, if God is perfect, it has so much junk in it, basically. And why is God pro-slavery, according to the Bible? That was his question to this big-time Christian guy. He asked him. And he basically, the guy didn't have answers for Bill Maher. He was um, kind of dumbfounded. He didn't know what to say. My question I pose to you guys is, how would you answer? If someone said, I see in the Bible that God is pro-slavery, how can you be with that kind of thing? You believe God spoke that. You want to follow a God that's pro-slavery? Because we know that that's like, Taboo. I mean, civil rights and Martin Luther King Jr. and all that stuff. But if someone was to approach you and said, I, I see the Bible as being pro-slavery, how would you answer? Or would you have an answer? Apparently, you guys wouldn't have an answer. So, what he would be talking about would be Old Testament. Right? Remember... Um, well, I know Jade and Michael and Tim and Stephen and Mark were all in, in when I went through Isaiah, as we were going through the book of Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, the children of Israel are being told they're going to be going into captivity for 400 years. No, that's Egypt there in 400 years. It was um, 70 times, 490 years. 490 years they were going into captivity because of the years that they didn't let the land rest that God told them to on the Sabbath. They, were, they weren't giving the land its Sabbath rest, so God was going to send them into captivity to give the land its Sabbath rest. And so God says that they were going to go into captivity, into Babylon. And he told them what it was going to be like in Babylon and that not everybody was going to come back out. But he told Isaiah to tell the people that when they came back out of, out of Babylon that when the people came back with them, that they were to make them servants in their households. So to read that on the surface, God is saying, you're going to make these people your slaves, which would be, I'm guessing, because I, I don't know, because this guy never questioned Bill Maher and what he was talking about as far as slavery. But that's the place I know that God does tell the people that, when they come back from the captivity in Babylon, that they were going to make these other people their servants or slaves. But if you guys remember when we went through the book of Isaiah, when it speaks of servants, household servants, the word in the Hebrew actually is to be made like 
family members. Yes, they would be servants, but they were to be treated as family members while they were servants. It wasn't slavery like this guy's trying to say, or like we know that we did in our country to the Africans when they were brought to America and they were treated like dirt, like less than human. God said that you treat these people well and remember the way you were treated when you were taken captive captive into Babylon and the way you were treated as slaves there. And don't you treat them the same way you were treated. So on the surface, it looks like God is saying, yes, he is pro-slavery. But what God is saying is these people are coming back and they will be your servants, but when they serve you, you do not treat them the way they treated you when you were there. When they come back, you treat them as family members. That's why when we get into the New Testament, we have that the idea of the, the doulos or the, the bond servant. And as a bond servant, when you came as a servant to somebody, whether it was through... Um, uh, I'm trying to think of... Uh, man, I can't think of the word. When, when you owe somebody a debt, Debtor's prison, right? You go to debtor's prison and you become a slave to somebody to pay back a debt. So you go back and you work for somebody and you, you're, you're selling yourself basically as a slave to pay a debt that you owe. And when you get done paying that debt, all of a sudden you find out this guy that you worked for was great. He treated you so well, provided for you wife, children, home, just was really good you could become a doulos or a bond servant. And if you chose to do that, then the master, your master, would take you to the doorpost of his house and he would take an awl, A-W-L, and he would punch a hole in your ear and put an earring in your ear. And that told the people that you were a bond servant, but it was by choice. You were not forced to do it. At first you were because you were paying a debt. But the guy treated you so well that you chose not to leave and to stay a servant to this guy. And it happened all the time. That's the idea that you should be treating these people so well that when you are set free or when they have the opportunity to be set free, they don't want to go because you're treating them the way that they're supposed to be treated. Um, God always reminded the Israeli or the Jewish people, the Hebrews, always reminded them of what they were when they were in captivity. And he said, don't you ever treat anybody that way. If you remember, I talk about that all the time, is when you as a boss, over when you oversee people or you're in charge of people, think of how you want to be treated. And that's how you treat people. You don't treat someone the way you were treated if you were treated bad. You treat them good because you bear the name of Christ. So you're supposed to do that. So when he asks about the Bible, God being pro-slavery, he's wrong in his presumption. God is not pro-slavery the way he's talking pro-slavery. God was allowing these people to come out of a total pagan society and become a servant to a loving God, which is something that he also brings up about God, which we will bring. God is a loving God, Old Testament and New Testament, it says in Hebrews that Jesus Christ is same yesterday, today, and forever. Okay, And Michael went through and he taught us, and we learned that Jesus Christ is God. So God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If he was a loving God in the New Testament, he's a loving God in the Old Testament. Okay. 
Another thing that Bill Maher said was that if God is perfect, why is there this scriptures that God is pro-polygamist? God is for polygamy, multiple wives. Anybody would have an answer for that one. People are dumb. Um, and one of the greatest examples of a dumb person that wants a lot of wives would be Solomon. Though he was the wisest man ever to live, 700 wives and 300 concubines. 1,000 women in his life. That is a fool. If anybody can speak about foolishness, it would be Solomon. But very wise. I mean, obviously at some point... He was really wise. God gave him wisdom beyond measure, but he chose to follow the flesh. We can see in Ecclesiastes where he talks about how he tried everything, but at the end of it all, he said, is that you are just to love God. That's it wasn't that was the end of everything he realized. It's it's all about God. So um, but he was foolish. Okay. God was not pro polygamy. The Bible speaks about polygamy a lot. Most of the people, uh, the patriarchs, a lot of them are polygamists. They have more than one wife. But you never see God say that that was his desire nor his design. God's design and his desire were in Genesis. He created one man and one woman. That was it. One man, one woman. The the best marriages that you see in the scripture are that. And... um I think one of the greatest examples of that would be Joseph and Mary. Joseph was betrothed to Mary. She was pregnant with a, a child that was not his. And he loved his wife so much, or at that point they'd be considered married when you're betrothed. He loved her so much Then, rather than have her killed, which would be the law, which would be legal under the law, he was ready to put her away privately, the scriptures say. But then the Holy Spirit came to him and said not to do it because the child that she was pregnant with was from God, which was the Messiah. So you see that single marriage, um, the single husband-wife, normal marriage, monogamous, the blessing that God gave. Um, Isaac and Rebekah is another great example. And we see Isaac and Rebekah with Abraham, Isaac, uh Rebecca, the servant, that whole thing is a picture of Jesus Christ, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the Bride of Christ, which would be the church. It's all part of that, which there are people um, that in within Calvary chapels and the Reform people, mostly, that would say that that is not what that is showing. Um, I think they're completely wrong. God never says that he puts his blessing upon polygamy. Nowhere in the scripture. It shows it in the scripture just like it shows there would be slavery that would be bad. It shows polygamy that is bad. It shows in the Bible, we see murder in the Bible. A man after God's own heart that was a murderer, an adulterer, and a polygamist. But he was a man after God's own heart. But God never condoned what David did. It just shows it. Like we talked about, or I talked about last week, God shows the people warts and all. He knows everything about us. That's how we, that's like one of the greatest proofs that this Bible isn't written 
by men or by the will of men. It was written by inspiration of the Holy Spirit because it shows man fallible as a sinner doing the wrong things, bad things. If man wrote this book and we wanted to promote David, you'd never talk about him murdering Uriah. You'd never talk as adultery with Bathsheba. You wouldn't talk about a lot of the stuff that's in here because it doesn't make man look good. And then it brings questions on God like this. Why does God allow? Why does God say it's okay? And he never does. This is just man. It's for us to look at and go, wow, God chose some pretty rotten people. Saul of Tarsus, a murderer. Not just killing one like Paul did or like David did. Saul of Tarsus was, when they were murdering the Christians, the people were throwing their clothes at Saul's feet while they murdered the people, while they murdered the Christians, the followers of Jesus. God doesn't condone that. But it's to show us, look, if God can reach somebody like Saul of Tarsus, if there's hope for that man, the murderer, the murderer of Christians, there's hope for anybody. So he never condones it. It's there, though, so we can see it. He shows men warts and all. Man would not do that. Man would want this to be, a. they would clean this up so good so that we go, oh, look at how good God is and look at the church. Because that's the way we play church. We do the same thing. We come into church and we're all cleaned up and we don't talk about any, but how's everything going? Oh, praise God, everything is so beautiful in my life and everything's great. And, but that's not the reality. You know, when you come in and you go, hey, how's it going? Oh, man, I'm struggling right now. This thing's going on. I mean, we got here tonight. It's like, man, I was home for 10 minutes. I didn't get to get dinner. You know, we're like, we, you know, we want to be honest with each other. Now, we don't have to get all the dirt and air out all our dirty laundry and stuff. But when we're struggling, we go, hey, you know, I'm, I'm just struggling with something right now. You know what it is. So, you know, and then we have the close people that we can talk to about stuff. But uh, we want to be real. And that's what God is showing us. He takes real people that struggle in life and he cleans them up. That's why David could be called a man after God's own heart. God sees us finished product. He doesn't see what we are right now. He sees us through Jesus Christ. Through the blood, he sees us. And that's what he portrays as us. That's why he sees us as clean, as righteous, because we're definitely not. But he sees us that way. But here's this guy, Bill Maher, who has no clue about God, hates God, hates Christians, has a Christian on his show that has no answers for him. To me, it's sad that this man couldn't defend his belief. He also says that God is homophobic, whatever that is. And he says that God in the Old Testament is a psychotic mass murderer. I went onto a bunch of websites for atheists and skeptics and all kinds of stuff, and they bring this up a lot. Why did God tell him to go and you kill the women, the children, and everybody? Anybody want to guess why that would be? Anybody? Because there's evidence of them turning the hearts of the people to follow after their wicked practices when they left the people. Yeah, they, I mean, they were wicked, wicked people. The Assyrians, the Assyrians, which was the group that God actually used. The Babylonians and Assyrians are where the, the Hebrew children went into captivity that Isaiah was talking about, that I was just talking about for 490 years. The Assyrians would go into a city and they would fillet the people. 
they would actually take their skin and fillet it off of them while they were alive. They would... Uh, I, I won't even talk about some of the stuff that they would do. They were wicked, wicked, wicked people. When they took you in captivity, they stripped you naked. They put a hook in your nose and actually drug you with that hook. That's how they... They didn't like put handcuffs on you like they do. or You weren't in a chain gang like on your wrist. They'd put a hook in your nose. They would do horrific things. Um, that, and God said, these people are wicked, evil people, and they must be destroyed. In most ancient civilizations, and in China was one of them, where when a dynasty changes, let's say, like I, I, there's a guy, Jimmy Wu, who was the Kung Fu instructor that um, Roland Xavier were under, when Jimmy was part of the Chang family, the Chang dynasty in China. The Chang dynasty was overthrown. And when it was overthrown, the first thing they do is they go through and they murder everybody in the family. Because if they can kill everybody in the family, and this is what you see in the scriptures. I'm going through right now, I'm, I'm personally reading through, uh, or actually just finished Chronicles. You see, when a king takes over a kingdom... He kills all the children of the king because he doesn't want any of them to rise up and come after him. So if he destroys the whole family, then nobody in the family is going to come and try to take him or his kingdom away from him. So that's what God is saying. These people, their children, what, Tim? Changing the setting on this so that it'll stay on longer. Um, my tablet for anybody that's listening other than sitting here. Yes, and that is, <coughs> that was a promise to God that He would destroy these people. Um, but was God, like Bill Maher accuses, was God just a psychotic mass murderer? Was His goal just to murder people? The Canaanites, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Sodomites. Those of Sodom and Gomorrah. In, when the children of Israel were going around to Jericho, and God said He wanted them to go in and destroy Jericho and overthrow the whole place. All of Jericho was to be destroyed. We talked about it last week a little bit about how they, they found out the walls were blown out at Jericho. But when they were told to go into Jericho, they were to destroy everything. The two spies had gone in. Rahab, the harlot, hid them. And sent them away a different direction than the people were supposed to go. I don't think my time is going to stay on. Now it's going even shorter. Um, when, when Rahab 
hid the spies. And her hiding the spies, she told the, the guys to remember her and her family. Ooh, that's what happened. <laughs> I messed up. I made it 30 seconds instead of 30 minutes. So I was like, all of a sudden it was going dark really fast. I'm like, wait. Um, when he told Rahab to hide, or did, did she hid the spies, they told her when she said, remember me and my people for what I've done for you, they said, hang a scarlet thread out your window so when we come and destroy the city, we won't destroy you nor your family. Rahab was putting faith, even though it doesn't directly say she became a believer, she put her faith and trust in the God of the Hebrews and was not destroyed for doing so. In Egypt... When they, when the children, when the Hebrew children left Egypt, and God was going to wipe out the Egyptians, it says that a mixed multitude came out with them, which means Egyptians came with them. When they went into captivity in Babylon, God said, "When I deliver you from Babylon and you come back, according to what Cyrus and the king was going to allow, when you come back, and the Babylonians, some of the Babylonians come back with you." See, God's God's intent is never to completely destroy; He wants to change hearts and lives of people. That's his intent. That's what he wants to do. And so if a Saul of Tarsus, a Kevin Kohler who is a bad person, anybody chooses to follow after the God of the Bible, you can come to him and he changes you and he will not destroy you. You have an opportunity. If you were to read the service again like this, Belmar, he doesn't know the scriptures. He just knows what he's heard and he's seen where God was a destroyer. And if he grew up in a church, I don't know, a lot of these guys grew up in these churches where they don't really articulate the scripture and know that God's whole purpose is always to redeem mankind. He sent his own son to die for the world so that anybody that would come to him would be saved. From Genesis to Revelation, that's God's plan all along. It's never been anything different. His plan was never, well, in the Old Testament, I'm going to be a God that kills everybody. But then, you know, once Jesus comes in, I'll start loving people again. Or they put God of the Old Testament as one evil, wicked, mass murderer kind of guy, God. And then when Jesus came, Jesus was the nice, loving, milquetoast God that everybody gets saved. Even Satan eventually gets saved, which is a belief that a lot of people have today. It's the same person. Michael taught us that just a few weeks ago. God is the same. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All the same. It's There's no difference. So when Bill Maher says that God is pro-slavery, pro-polygamy, homophobic, whatever that is, and a psychotic mass murderer, it's his ignorance of Scripture that would cause him to say that. Okay, But we as Christians need to know God's Word. After Tanner taught last night, I told him, I said, I'm just going to play your CD. So anybody that would be listening online or through the CD now, Tanner's study last night was basically the importance and the necessity of God's Word in the life of a believer. And he taught it through 1 Samuel, with Samuel, as he became the first of the prophets that God uses and the last of the judges. And it is a, a time when God's Word wasn't very widespread, Samuel heard God's word and God used him in an incredible way as he was obedient to God's word. But he heard God's word and he responded to God's word. So as Christians, 
It's important that we know God's word or we hear God's word and that we respond to God's word. So when someone like this would come to us, now when somebody asks you, why is God pro-slavery? You have an answer. Why is he allowing polygamy? You have an answer. If he's homophobic, whatever that is, and I keep saying that because it's a made-up term to make us feel like bad people because we don't agree with homosexuality. Okay, It's just we don't agree to it. It's not God's design. They do it. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, and that's why he's homophobic. I'm sure that's why they say that. Um, the sin, the sickness, the disease, all the stuff that they hide in the media to not let you know how bad this lifestyle is. They try to make it seem like it's a normal thing. The average age of, age of a homosexual man is 42 years of age, and they die because of this terrible, ho- horrible things that go on when they practice that lifestyle. Um, Something else, another great philosopher of our day. Her name is Oprah Winfrey. At a graduation at Skidmore College, here's what she has to say, that great uh, philosopher, Christian, um, she embraces anything, doesn't matter. Here's what she said to the students as they graduated at Skidmore College. I don't know where that is, but she says, I've been so blessed to live inside the dream of God. God's dream. She's living inside of God's dream. I'm sure that sounds really good, I guess, to people. But living inside of God's dream? So we're not living life. We're living in God's dream. If you know Eastern mysticism, which I taught a little bit, I hit just a little bit on the yoga, just kind of in the the Hinduism and the Eastern mysticism, Some of their teaching teaches that basically we're all living in somebody else's dream and responding to it. We're not living physically in this world. The same thing that Scientologists, Scientology, um, supposedly the metaphysical religions, uh, Christian science, Scientology, Eastern mysticism, Hinduism, yoga is part of it. They all, not they all, there are sects of that They believe that we don't physically exist. You guys are living in my dream and your dream corresponds with my dream and through that we presume this reality that we are supposedly living it. It's crazy. So Oprah Winfrey says, I'm blessed to live in God's dream. And so I'm a multi-billionaire lady who can have, I quoted Rob Bell last week and the junk that he teaches, or I almost said the wrong McLaren. Brian McLaren, um, Doug Paget, um, these guys, it's garbage what they teach. This emergent philosophy is not scripture. They question God and they believe this stuff or they allow Oprah Winfrey to believe this stuff and they say, no, she's all right. It's not that bad. She also said, noting, that she has learned to follow her inner truth. So she has an inner truth that she follows. So she lives in God's dream and follows her inner truth. Okay. How do you find your inner truth? That's Hinduism. Eastern mysticism. The way most of these people do it is through, like I talked about last week, with meditation. Empty your mind. And then allow the spirit guides to come in and they'll take you to the inner truth, whatever it is. 
But God's meditation, scriptural meditation, like I said last week, is not emptying your mind. It's dwelling on God's Word and God Himself. And finding out what is it that God has to say. Chewing the cud. You, you get God's Word and you think about it over. That's what I do all week long as I prepare for these studies. I just, all week I'm like, okay God, how do you want to present this? I've got Scripture and I wanted it to be different. How am I going to put this together and make it different? You guys got the same handout you had last time, but we're probably not going to touch it just like last week. We never touched on the Scripture last week that I had written on from your old. I had just new stuff. and It's because it's a discussion between us, really, is what we're doing here. So she follows her inner truth. She says that she had learned to follow her inner truth in career decisions going back more than three decades. She tells the students here as they're graduating, it's a big, bad world out there. So she advised... Or it's a big bad world out there, she advised, but encourage graduates by adding, there's nothing more powerful than using your personality to serve the calling of yourself. The greatest strength you have. Use your personality to serve the calling of yourself. She lives in God's dream, but she serves her own calling. You guys see how convoluted and, and how crazy this thinking is? And like I said, that, that interview that um, Rob Bell had with her, and you listen to Rob Bell's answers as she's questioning him stuff about God, crazy stuff. You're thinking there's no way these people are Christians, but they would claim to be. Or at least religious, spiritual. That's what a lot of them say. So here's Bill Maher with his convoluted thinking about God. Oprah Winfrey, who has this weird thing. But see, how do you deal with somebody like that? If someone comes to you with that, what do you say? How do you deal with them? Jeremiah 17.9? Anybody know what that is? Right? The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. So, if my heart is deceitful and desperately wicked... Do I really want to follow my inner truth? Because it's deceitful. It's wicked. And that's what I'm going to follow. And then she's telling these graduates, oh, that's what you want to follow. That's what I've done. That's why I'm so successful. She is very successful. Successful. But her success is her downfall. See, because if she was dirt poor and she had nothing like I once was, I had to turn to God. Because that was the only answer I could see was Him. She's filthy rich and she doesn't need God. Because she's got the answers. And if she doesn't have the answers, she can buy whatever it is she wants to satisfy herself temporarily. But like they say, you've never seen a hearse hauling a U-Haul. Right? You can't take it with you. The old saying, he who dies with the most toys wins. But he who dies with the most toys still dies. You ultimately face God. So it's important to know. Um, dealing with an atheist. So I was reading this story. I kind of reworded it myself, but this was something I, I, I saw and I thought this is, this is a really interesting perspective. So an atheist and a Christian, they're going to have a debate. The atheist tells the Christian, or asks him, says, prove to me there is a creator. 
but you can't use the Bible because I don't believe it's true. Okay, so this is what the atheist, so telling the Christian, we're going to debate. I want you to prove to me there's a creator, but you can't use the Bible because I don't believe in it. So the Christian says, okay, sure. I won't use the Bible. There's lots of evidence for a creator in the universe. The problem with the Christian's agreement is that he's accepted the atheist's foolish presupposition. So in arguing with the atheist, when he starts pointing out all the wickedness, the death, why are children being murdered and all the bad stuff that's happening in the world, the Christian cannot now go to God's original creation and the perfection that God had created in the beginning and the sin problem that creates all of his issues. Because I just agreed that I'm not going to use the Bible. If I can't use the Bible, I can't describe the perfection that God once created. So it's important to know God's word and the necessity of it in your life because if you have to speak to somebody on God and they have no belief system, they're atheists, which I don't believe there's any atheists anywhere in the world. And I've told you guys it's easy to disprove them because that is just a word they use to say, I'm super smart and I don't need God. So like I said, I always tell them, okay, I'll give you that you're super smart and you know 30% of everything that can be known in the world. Everything that can be known. 30% of it. And that's a huge amount because I probably know like 0.2% of like two percent of what can be known in the world. I know very little. And even as a professional electrician, I probably know ten percent of electrical. I mean, and I know a lot. So, anyways, give the atheist thirty percent of all that can be known in the world, and you give them that, and they know that's a huge amount of knowledge, and they agree. Okay, okay, I know thirty percent of everything. So you say, okay, so then you don't know seventy percent of everything that can be known. And God could easily exist out there, right? They have to acknowledge that it's possible. You've just turned an atheist into an agnostic. Atheist says there is no God. An agnostic says I'm not sure if there's a God or I don't know if there's a God. Well, I just took their 30% and said God might exist in the 70% you don't know and now I have somewhere to, something to work with. Now I can work from there and try to show them that there is a God. There is a creator. But I can't throw out the Bible. So don't ever get caught in the trap because it's important and it's necessary that we know God's word and that we know how to use God's word. Remember in scriptures, the Bible tells us it's a sword, right? We have to know how to wield the sword. We don't use it to cut people up or to kill people. We use it to defend, but we have to be careful with that too. The Bible doesn't, C.H. Spurgeon once said when somebody came to him, Mr. Spurgeon, how do you defend the Bible? He said, defend the Bible? He said, how do you defend a lion? He said, you don't have to defend the lion. Open the cage. Let it out. It'll defend itself. Okay, so what he's saying is, if you know God's word, in defense of God's word, just give God's word. It defends itself. When when the, the evolutionist comes and starts telling you about how monkeys turned into men and man bit. And you just go, no, wait, let's, let's look at the Bible and what the Bible says about man. And then you can go into scientific proof that evolution is impossible. The possibility is just, I mean, there's no way it ever could have happened. And they know that. That's why it's grown from when I was a kid, from millions of years 
in evolution for man to turn into a, or monkey to turn into a man to now 13.5 billion and probably up to 14 something billion now. And they'll keep growing and growing and growing as knowledge increases. We realize that there's no possible way. It's, it's mathematically impossible for evolution to happen. So we need to know God's word and we use it. Okay. So as Christians, we need a standard to build our Christian walk upon. And it can't just be common sense, passed down tradition, or the wisdom of men. Okay? Now you guys could look at your notes and it's there. Okay? So it can't be that. There has to be a standard. The standard has to be God. We can't have this, this wishy-washy, uh, you know, we're, we're not quite sure what God said, what God meant. Um, the the whole thing that like Rod Bell talked about that I, the quote that I used last week from him. Um, let me go back to it because I've got it here. Uh, don't I have it here? Uh, if I don't find it quick, I won't use it. I know I've got it. Oh, it's, I didn't put it back right. Okay. I could pull up my notes. Anyways, Rob Bellin is questioning God and what God meant. We have to have the standard. The standard is God's Word. Always God's Word. Psalm 119, 105, it says, God's Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So, as we seek God and His will for our lives, His Word will light the way. All we have to do is step out. A problem, like I was talking with Tanner last night, and he was bringing up, is that the people come and sit in the church, and 10% of the people in the church do 100% of the work. The other 90% of the people just warm a pew because they feel good about being at church, or they like to hear God's Word, but there's never any action put to it, which Tanner taught last night with Samuel. When Samuel heard God's Word, he jumped up and ran to Eli. says, what do you want? Here I am. Eli said, I didn't call you three times. The third time, Eli perceived that it was God, and he said, next time, answer God and say, here I am, speak, or whatever. So God speaks to Sam, but Samuel was responding to God's word as God was speaking it. Most of the church does not do that. That's why the church is weak, anemic, and we have things like this going on where people question God and his pro-slavery and pro-polygamy, or we're looking for our inner truth, and we can't discern what is right and what is wrong anymore in the church because we don't know His Word. It's important to know His Word so that we can keep from those things that water down His Word, twist His Word, change His Word. We know that in Corinthians, Paul says that Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Paul says that if we or an angel from heaven come to you and preach any other word other than what you have believed, let him be anathema, or damned to the lowest part of hell. He says, it's God's word given the way it is. And if anybody tries to change that, and I talked about how David Koresh, Jim Jones, a lot of these people today, we've got stuff creeping in the church. We put holy in front of it. We slap Christian on it. And all of a sudden it's accepted in the church. Just because we threw a label on it. It's from the pit of hell, but we threw a Christian label on it and now it's okay. Because we'll, we'll Christianize it up. 
And that's what we do as Christians. We try to be accepted doing what the world is doing. We're trying to be relevant to the world. God says you don't need to be relevant to the world. We need to be relevant to what Jesus Christ is calling us to be. Holy, perfect, separated people. The world needs something different. They don't need the same thing that they have in the world with a Christian label on it. They need something different. And I'm not talking about like music, okay? The, the Christian, contemporary Christian music is great if the lyrics are fully towards God. It's different. The music may sound the same. Lyrically, nowhere even close. Like we just sang the Amazing Grace song. Um, what is the one that... Uh, there's uh, the Christmas song that's Green Sleeves. Um, it was an old bar song and we turned it in and they turned it into a Christian song. It's the same lyric, music as the worldly music, but the lyrics are completely different. So they've taken those lyrics, they've turned it into a Christian thing. It's different because the words say something other than, you know, I want to kill people, I want to rape women, I want to, you know, party and drink and get stoned and all that. That's the world. That's what they tell you. You know, and, and it's hidden in there because you don't even hear it. a lot of people, you know, being involved with youth for all the years I was. Um, I was constantly dealing with youth about the music they listened to. Oh, no, MC Hammer back in the 80s. Oh, he's a Christian. And I would pull up some of his lyrics and show the kids. This is what he's talking about, man. So what do you think he's talking about? Do you think he's talking about, you know, he wants to sleep with Jesus? You think that's what he's saying here? I don't think he is, and I won't even talk about some of the lyrics that I used to pick up and show these guys. That's not what he's talking about. God's Word in, in music is a great way to learn God's Word. The kids, my kids, you know, and Salty, Michael too, he had Salty as he's growing up. Salty, the singing songbook, and it was just lyrics, uh, Halo and GT and the Halo Express, another one. It was just biblical lyrics put to music. And they, you learn scripture. It's great. This one right here, uh, Psalm 119.105. That's a great song. Um, that Amy Grant sang it, but I believe it was probably, I think Rich Mullen is the one that wrote it. I'm not positive. It was probably him, Wayne Kirkpatrick, or Michael W. Smith. One of those three probably wrote it because she didn't write much of her own music. Um, these guys wrote a lot of her music. And that's not to take away from her. What she did then, okay? I don't endorse Amy Grant now. She did some bad stuff. Remember, Psalm 1.1 exhorts us not to walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. Okay? God says that blessed is the man who does not do these things. So when we seek counsel, we want to make sure our counsel is godly counsel. We as Christians should have answers the scriptures say that. That we should be able to give to every man an answer of the reason for the hope that lies within us. We should have an answer. When someone says, hey, so why is it being a Christian better than being a Muslim? Or better than being a Buddhist? Or better than being a Krishna or a whatever? Why is it better than Shintoism or all these other religions that are out there? Why is it better? We should have an answer. If we don't have an answer, it's if they ask a question we don't know, that's fine to say, hey, you know what? I, I don't have that answer, but let me study that and get back to you. Right? There's nothing wrong with that. 
I remember I've shared before. I don't know. I think I've shared. I don't think I've shared it since we've been here, so it won't be on recording. This time it will. That Jehovah's Witness, when he came to me and I was ready to lay down this dude, I was going to lay into him with the deity of Jesus Christ. Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. I was going to nail him with it. He came in and started talking about hell. And I was dumbfounded. I was like, ooh, I wasn't ready for that one. I thought we were going to do the deity of Christ, and I was ready. So he starts talking about Sheol and Gehenna and Hades, and I was like, I don't know what this guy's talking about. So we talked a little bit. He went to um, Luke chapter 16, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. He said it was the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. They love the parables because the parables they think are open to interpretation. So he was going to interpret the parable for me according to what the um, Bethel Bible Watchtower and Tract Society, the, uh, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses, these guys up in Bethel, Washington, write all this stuff out. He was going to share it with me. And he had his little book of um, their parables and answers, and he left it with me. It was almost Christmas. He was going away for Christmas, going to be gone for a couple weeks. And he left the book with me so that I could read it, which was great. He wasn't supposed to do that, but he did. So I got to read all of their understanding of the parables. And so I thought, okay, I've read that. I said, okay, I want to know hell. I want to know what the Bible says about hell. And I went to every scripture in the Bible that talked about Sheol, Hades, and Gehenna. Okay, and it's all hell. One's Hebrew, hell. One is Greek, hell. And one is... Greek, Gehenna, which is the lake of fire. Okay? That's what those words were. God gave me the one scripture in Matthew 13, the parable of the wheat and the tares. It was a parable. Um, I was able to share that parable with a guy. He was fuming, screamed, yelled at me. Um, I mean, and he did literally yelled at me and walked out of the house and said he would never come back. And uh, I was like, whatever. I didn't have his answer that night. God gave me two weeks while he was gone to get his answer. When he came back, he didn't like the answer because he knew what I had told him was truth. Remember, parables, whenever you're coming to a parable, the word of God and the importance of it is to know that parables compare or contrast. That's all they do. So it's either comparison or it's a contrast. So when you see something about the wicked ruler that he did something, the wicked ruler is in contrast to a loving, righteous God. That's the contrast. Or when you see the the sower that sowed the seed, and the seed, that was a comparison. Right? Because the sower was sowing good seed. That's not a contrast. That That's God. That's Jesus. He's sowing good seed. And the good seed goes out, and it's to bring in crops. And the wicked one comes in, and he messes with the good seed. Or he plants tares with the wheat. So it's a comparison. This is comparing spiritual things with something that they knew physically. Planting wheat with the weeds that grow with it. And it's a comparison. So that's, that's all parables are. Comparing and contrasting. And when you look at it, you can tell which one he's trying to show you. That parable that a guy, the Jehovah's Witness used in Luke chapter 16 isn't a parable. He said parable. It's a story. Because you can read any parable that Jesus talks about, never a personal name used in a parable. 
in that story in Luke 16, it's the rich man and Lazarus. This person has a name. So he's not comparing and contrasting. He's telling a story. Something that gave us some insight as to what happened before Jesus resurrected and went to heaven. So it's it's pretty cool when you see that stuff. Um, so we want to make sure we don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, don't stand in the path of sinners, and we don't sit in the seat of the scornful. So we can associate with those in the world, but I don't hang out with the world. I can be in the world. I'm not of the world. None of my good friends are worldly people. Actually, my only, really, my only friend that I have is my wife. I mean, you know, I got my kids and my family and stuff, but she's my friend. She's the one I hang out with all the time. I don't have anybody I hang out with all the time. And that just happens when you get married anyways. I'd rather hang out with her. So, you know, I mean, I love to go play sports and stuff, but, you know, I, I play on a softball team with a bunch of heathens. Tim and I do. We're the only two Christians on the team. But I don't hang out with them. Sometimes I'll barbecue after a game. I'll do a little barbecue with them. Sometimes I won't. They're just, they're not the people I want to be around. I don't want to stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of the scornful. My delight is in the law of the Lord. And in His law, He meditates. There's that word, thinks on, dwells on, like the cow chewing the cud. He meditates day and night. If you do that, you shall be like a tree planted by the river of water. You will bring forth fruit in its season. We don't know that season. God knows that season. We just are faithful to bring forth the fruit. We meditate. We're like a tree planted by the river of water. If we're meditating, we're sitting by the water, by God. He's feeding us that water. That's how plants and trees live, right? So that fruit is going to be born one way or another, whether it's the way you live your life because you're living out God's word or opportunities that he gives you to share his word because you've meditated on it. When someone comes to you with a question like this, you've already thought through this stuff. Okay, I think... I, I, truly, I know it's maybe I'm weird. I think about God's word all the time and talking with people about God's word. I think about that. Oh, oh, that's a good scripture right there. If someone was to say this thing, I could use this scripture for it. That's kind of meditating on God's word. I, I liken it to like Kung Fu, learning Sansu. When I learned it, my mind always thinks it. I think when I'm, I'm always like if I go to the bank, I, okay, if someone comes close to me and they have a knife, here's what I can do. If they have a gun, here's what I will do. If they throw a punch, here's what I can do. My mind is constantly thinking towards those things, physically trying to defend if I have to myself. God's word is the same way. I'm meditating on it because, number one, I want to get closer to God. I want to understand what he wants me to know. And I also want to have it so that if I'm challenged in his word, I can respond. Deuteronomy 4.2, also Revelation 22.19, warns that we are never to add or take away from God's word. So like Tanner taught last night in Samuel, when Eli came to Samuel and said, tell me all that God spoke to you. Don't hold back any of it. If you do, then I... I want it all to go on to you. So Samuel spoke, like Tanner was talking about last night. He told Eli everything God had to say. Even though it was not going to be popular with Eli, he wasn't going to like it because it was a bad thing that he had to say. 
You go through the prophets. Isaiah, as he's going through Israel, telling them that they're going into captivity in Babylon. They didn't like what he had to say. In fact, history, um, not history, um, tradition says that Isaiah was actually cut in two. That's how they killed him. Most of the prophets were killed. Jeremiah, as he's going at the same time, he's going through, um, as they're going into captivity, he's prophesying, letting them know what's going to happen. They throw Jeremiah into a pit. And the king says, I'm going to throw you in the pit. And when we come back from this battle, then we'll pull you out and you're busted. He goes, if you come back, then I wasn't a true prophet of God. And they didn't come back. Jeremiah was in the pit. Because he told the truth. How about Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego? Right? All the things that Daniel went through. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown into a fire. The the truth doesn't make you popular. It doesn't make you popular in the church. People don't like to hear the truth. They don't like to hear what God has to say. Give me some warm stuff. Tell me how I can look into my inner truth and be led. Or my... I'm going to put my glasses on so I can see. Right? My inner truth. Uh, tell me how I can live inside of God's dream. Stuff like that. It's, it's crazy stuff. Crazy stuff these people believe. And they claim that it's God's Word. I want to share one last thing. That same poll that I read from earlier. I'm going to read something different about it though. These same people were polled. They said, how do people see daily Bible readers? Are their opinions generally positive or more negative? The people that were polled. How did they see God's daily Bible readers? They said, did they think positively or negatively about them? When presented with a list of 12 items, both positive and negative, All five positive comments came out on top. Impressions of Bible da- daily Bible readers. 39% humble. So 39% of the people polled said daily Bible readers are very humble people. 38% of the daily Bible readers, according to these people, said are loving people. 34% are of the people polled, they said they see them as accepting people. So, not homophobic, accepting. Daily Bible readers. Um, they rounded out their, their top-tier descriptions, right? Another 24% dis- described daily Bible readers as open, followed by 21% who described them as smart. 19% said they're interesting only 15% said they were judgmental. 12% said they were narrow-minded. 6% said they were foolish. 5% said they acted as know-it-alls. 3% said they were hateful. And 3% said they were boring. So daily Bible readers, according to the world, are a kind of people they want to interact with. They find us as humble, loving, accepting, open, smart, interesting, not judgmental, narrow-minded, foolish, know-it-alls, hateful, or boring. That's pretty crazy. The daily Bible readers. 
So the world as a whole, at least in this poll of the you know 2,400 plus that they polled, they said it's interesting talking with Christians. They don't see because we're always told, oh, if, if you talk like that, they're not going to like you. They're going to think you're judgmental. You're going to be homophobic or whatever. But according to that poll, they don't see us that way. I, I know I'm speaking to daily Bible readers here. So that's not the way they see us. So as we go through God's Word, like I said, like Tanner was teaching last night, as we go through, let's not just go through for the sake of going through. Let's go through so that we can be these trees planted by the rivers of water so that God can use us, that we will delight in God's law, meditate day and night so that we will bring forth the fruit in its season. He says, whose leaf shall not fail or shall not wither, whatever he does shall prosper. And that doesn't mean we're going to have a bunch of money. That's not what he's talking about. Because if this is our heart, if this is the people we want to be, the prospering is the last statistics I just read. When the world sees you as interesting, humble, you're the things that God called you to be. That's what the world sees. That's prosperous. We don't need to be like these Christians that run to Vegas to try to get quick money or we're playing the lottery all the time trying to make quick money. That's not what the world needs to see. The world needs to see content, loving, humble, Bible-believing, people with answers. When things go down in their life and they can't describe or can't understand why they're going through the things they're going through. In fact, tonight, Jeremiah is not with us because a friend of his is going through some hard stuff right now and he wanted to talk to Jeremiah. He's not a Christian, but he wanted to talk to a Christian about all the struggles he's going through right now because he knows his life. So Jeremiah is not with us tonight because he's doing ministry with somebody. That's what we want. There's nothing greater than having that. I, I Getting calls at midnight, it's hard. I've been called Sunday nights, 10, 10.30. Hey, I, I need you to come down and talk to this friend of mine. And i got to drive down the mountain and spend three or four hours talking to somebody because they don't. They don't know what's going on in their life or how to deal with what's going on in their life. And you're, they know you have an answer. That is the greatest feeling. I'm not saying that to pat me on the back. It's to say that that's what God can do and there's no greater feeling than to know you help somebody through a crisis in their life and show them Jesus Christ. And you obviously had been showing them because when the, when the chips were down, you were the one they wanted to talk to. That's what we want to be as Christians. That's why it is so important that we know God's word and that we live God's word in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you for tonight and just the things you show me every time I get to study. It's so cool. Um, just help us to grow in you each and every day, each and every time we do a study. And just give us vision. Give us wisdom. Show us what you want us to do. And use us here on this mountain wherever it is you take us in this world, to be a light and a witness to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.